have a seat. Thanks for being here. If you want to take your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 8, and 9. We're going to jump back into 2 Corinthians. If you've started coming to Bayou City Fellowship in the last four months, it might seem random that we're jumping to the middle of 2 Corinthians, but back in the fall, we started uh, with 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we started making our way through it, but then we got to Christmas, and we took a little break for Christmas. Long story short, four months later, here we are back in 2 Corinthians, and uh, just uh, uh, real excited about today because we're going to be making history here at Bayou City Fellowship. We're going to talk about something that we have never talked about in our long, long, long year and a half history. Uh, We're going to talk about money. Uh, which is uh, fantastic. I know I didn't get any amens on that because uh, everybody starts getting antsy when you start talking about money in the church, and, and I don't blame you. Uh, nobody likes to be told what to do with their hard-earned money. Uh, nobody likes to be told what to do with money they got for free. Uh, money is just very, very personal to us, isn't it? I tell uh, engaged couples that I do premarital counseling with, three things are going to cause massive blow-ups in your marriage, sex, your in-laws, and money. Those three things, if you can avoid all three of those things, then your marriage will be perfectly easy. But those three things are big, big fighting things because money is very, very personal to us. I remember when Amanda and I were newlyweds, uh, she was working her very first job out of college and making a, a, a nice income, not a big income, but uh, just a nice first out of you know, college job income. I was, uh, on the other hand, working for pennies for some church part-time while I was finishing school. And so money was not like a super luxury around the Jones house, uh, but we were happy. And, and so, um, uh, you know, Amanda was working in an office and, uh, you know, in an office, like a legitimate office, you have to wear, like, legitimate office clothes. I was still wearing things that I had bought in high school, you know, or my mom had bought me in high school and just carrying them on through. But she was now, you know, an adult, and she needed adult clothes. clothes. So every once in a while, like every two or three months, she would go shopping to buy her some new stuff to wear to work. And, uh, you know, men, sometimes, like, when you know you shouldn't say something... And you just probably, you know, just shouldn't when you know I shouldn't say this. But, like, you just can't resist it. And money's tight and money's always personal. So she would come home. And if she had more than one shopping bag, then I just felt like I had to say something. Like, it was my husband, um, you know, twisted, tainted duty to say something, you know, like, hey, I see you went shopping today with your multiple bags. If she just came home with one bag, then it wasn't a big deal. But two was kind of a, you know, just a deal breaker for me, I guess. Which is so ironic that I would give her a hard time about spending this money, which she was using to go and earn earn most of our money, you know, at any time she could have said, uh, yeah, big boy, how much money do you make a year <laughs> part-time in college? She didn't. She's a good woman. She didn't do that. Uh, but what was also ironic is I would give her a hard time about her, you know, two shopping bags with her clothes to work, and I would go to the academy and buy a fly fishing rod. A, never been fly fishing. B, I live in Houston, Texas. The only way that you can catch trout here in this city is at the grocery store. And so I had no problem spending hundreds of dollars on something that I want, but I would give her a hard time about spending less than that on clothes she actually needed to make most of our money. But you just don't, you don't, you don't operate out of rational thinking when you're talking about money most of the time. It's just always personal. That's why people don't like to talk about money at church. Because it's personal. But in case you're kind of getting nervous, and maybe this is your first time to church in a long time, and you're like, oh man, last time I was at church, three years ago, they talked about money. First time I'm back, here they're talking about money again. I'm going to set you free this morning. This is going to be the best money message you've ever heard. For two reasons. Number one, we already took the offering. (laughs) 
So if you're a guest with us, we do that at the end normally. But I didn't want anybody like, oh, just to talk to get, you know, more money at the end. No, we already took it. The other reason that you can be set free is because one of the anchors of this message, I'm going to prove to you from the scripture that if you don't want to give your money, you are totally free to keep it. Every dime. Totally free. You don't have to give one cent to this church. You don't have to give one cent to Compassion International. You don't have to send one cent of your money overseas to help little girls be uh, rescued from brothels. You You can keep every dime that you make. Because God does not want your money. He wants your generosity. And if your money and your generosity are not connected, it doesn't matter how much you give. It registers nothing in heaven. You can write the biggest check that Bayou City Fellowship has ever seen in its long, long history. But if you didn't give it out of generosity, it means nothing in heaven. And you can write the smallest check. But if you gave it out of a pure heart of generosity, there's massive impact. So for all of those in here in us who don't want to be told what to do with the money that they have earned and saved and stewarded, you are free. You keep all of it. And I'm going to prove to you from the scripture that you're able to do that if you want to. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You remember in 2 Corinthians... The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he has this very complicated relationship with them, kind of this back and forth tense relationship. There was a lot of misunderstanding. We have two of his letters to the Corinthians, but there were more letters than just that. And so there was a lot of this misunderstanding and, and hurt feelings there and hurt feelings here. And In fact, what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you care to read it later, I wanted you to look at it though, is, is that the Apostle Paul, he actually had to send one of his co-workers, uh, a guy named Titus, to actually go to Corinth to just see, is everything cool with us? You ever had to do that, have to kind of send in a friend with another friend to just make sure there's this kind of peace in the relationship? That's what Paul has to do. He knows a letter is not enough, and so he has to send Titus ahead just to make sure, hey, Paul still loves you guys. Do you love him? Are you listening to what he's saying? He's listening to the things that you're saying. There's peace here. Is there peace here? And so Titus goes to Corinth, and he actually comes back to Paul, and he gives Paul a good report. Hey, the Corinthians love you. Yeah, there's been some misunderstanding. There's some things that they still need to know and hear from you. But they love you and they know you love them. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to give generously. Because Paul is taking up a collection. See, we know from 1 Corinthians, uh, the first letter that he wrote to them, that there's been a famine in Judea. And the Jerusalem church, the Christians there, are being affected by it. They're, uh, They're malnourished. Uh, Some of them are starving. And so the Apostle Paul is going around to the churches that he has influence over. And he's asking the churches of Galatia. He's asking the churches of Macedonia. He's asking the churches of of Corinth here to, to, to send an offering with him back to the Jerusalem church to care for these brothers and sisters who are in need. If you also remember um, when, uh, when Christianity first started, it was Jewish people who became followers of Jesus. Jesus was a Jewish person, and then his first followers were Jewish people. So when the gospel began to spread uh, to Gentile places, 
there was kind of these questions in everybody's mind. Is, is this okay? Is, is the gospel, is, is Jesus just for the Jewish people or is he for everybody? And there was some real tension there. And so another one of the reasons that Paul wants the Corinthians and these other churches to be generous is just to alleviate some of that tension so the Jew, Jewish Christians would know, hey, the Gentile Christians, they love you, they care about you, they remember you. We're all in the same family. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's encouraging them to be ready to make that offering. He even says that he's going to send a few people ahead to start collecting it so that by the time that he gets back to Corinth, that offering will be ready. They can put it in his hands. They can send some representatives if they want, and they'll head on to Jerusalem, and they'll help these people who are in need. Then we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is what it says in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever." So we're going to start at the end and work our way back up. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So this promise right here is that God will give you what is sufficient. It's what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, teaching us how to pray. Teaches us to ask for our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. That is a a promise in the scripture that you will have your daily bread. That you will have what is sufficient for you. Now again, I noticed I didn't get any amens on the daily bread part. Why? Because none of us want just our daily bread. We want our daily bread and our daily roast and our daily brisket and our daily cheese and our daily wine. We want our daily everything. And we really don't want daily if we can remove that and say weekly or monthly or yearly. Or how about just like a once in a lifetime deposit so that I don't have to worry about it ever again. Those are the kinds of things that we would like to be promised. Can you promise me my monthly bread? Can you promise me my yearly bread? Can you promise me my next five years worth of bread? Because if I can get that promise, and in fact, if I can get more than just bread, that would be fantastic. Is that in the scripture that God wants us to have all those things? Is that something that we can claim? Say, God, you promised me. Well, sometimes when you read the Old Testament, if you just kind of jump into the middle of some of those stories and some of those prophets and some of those psalms, it can kind of appear that, that maybe you can't. And maybe God doesn't, he, he doesn't just want us to have daily bread. He wants us to have a bunch more than daily bread. Is that a real promise for us today? Well, you have to understand the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. See, in the Old Testament, you remember, God gave the Israelites these physical signs that let the whole world know that they were the people of God. You remember some of them. Uh, they literally had to be circumcised. The men had to be circumcised. That was a very physical and literal sign that they were a unique people at that time. No one else was really doing that kind of thing. And so that made them distinct among the peoples of the planet. Um, another one of the signs was uh, the sacrifices that they had to make in a specific order, at a specific time, in a specific way. That made them unique on the earth as the people of God. 
You also remember if you jump in anywhere in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they're always talking about the things that they can eat and they can't eat. And, and some even the New Testament, they're kind of deciding, are we able to eat this now that we're followers of Jesus or not? They had these diet laws, and part of those diet laws was to make them distinct on the earth as the people of God. And prosperity was one of those physical signs that God chose that would make them distinct from all the other people on earth at that time. You remember God rescues them out of slavery in Egypt and he takes them to a land that he had promised their forefathers. That's why they call it the promised land. And how does the Bible describe that promised land? But as a land flowing with milk and honey, richness. There's all kinds of fertile things in the promised land. There are people living in that promised land, but God is going to push those people out so that he can set his people right in this fertile place so that the whole world would know that he has prospered his people. So that he would be known and they would be known on the earth. As long as they kept their part of the covenant. As long as they were made faithful to God, God would prosper them. But they couldn't do it. They couldn't hold themselves together. And the idols of their neighbors began to look very enticing. And so they end up committing idolatry and worshiping these idols. And God ended up taking all that prosperity away from them. All that land that he had given to their forefathers because of their idolatry, he took it back and he let somebody else have it. Even to this day, the Jewish people do not get to have their own land. But when you get to the New Testament, the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, there's a change in trajectory. It's not ascending up some kind of financial ladder. Because who do we see right at the beginning of the New Testament? We see Jesus, the Son of God. Going up? No. Coming down. From the wealth of heaven, descending down to the poverty of earth. Who was Jesus born to? An elite family in a priestly line with tremendous amount of influence in the first century? No. He's born to a common carpenter, which was a fine occupation. It wasn't going to get uh, uh, Joseph a lot of grief or a lot of credit, just an average occupation. Where was Jesus born? Or where did Jesus, was he raised? Was he born and raised in Jerusalem with the influencers, with the elite, with those who would shape the future of Israel? No, he was raised in Galilee. If you lived in the first century and you came to Jerusalem, the city of God, and somebody asked you where you lived and you said Galilee, they would roll their eyes at you. Those are backwater, backward people up in Galilee. And that is where Jesus spends his formative years. The trajectory changes from one of ascending prosperity to descending a place of service. And so we don't have this promise today, according to the word of God, If you're just faithful and you do the right things, God is going to prosper you and everything is going to be on the up and up for you. But what we do have, according to the scripture, is that if you are faithful, he will give you your daily bread. And not only will he give you your daily bread, he will give you what is sufficient for you to be generous. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency... In all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So I don't know how big your storehouse is right now. You may I don't have a storehouse. I got like a, well, you know, my wallet has got one hole on the top and one hole on the bottom. Things come in and, and it goes out. You're like, I don't have no storehouse. People have storehouses. I don't know. Your storehouse may be non-existent or it may be very, very big. But whatever it is, God has given you what is sufficient for you to be generous. 
to abound in every good work. Now, I know what some of us are thinking. It's like, well, if God gave me more money, I would be more generous. I mean, I've said that a lot. In fact, I've tried to work that angle with God. Hey, if you'll just, you know, if you make me Bill Gates rich, I will give a lot of it away. I promise. I promise. And all of us have prayed something like that. God, I would be more generous. I would give. I just don't have enough. I'm committed to this mortgage and I'm committed to this rent and I'm committed to this person and I'm committed to this job and I'm just all committed. All my money is accounted for before it even gets into my bank account. I just don't have any left over to give. If I had more, I would give. Yeah, that's not true. In fact, there was a study that came out uh, this very week that said, I want to get these numbers right. Um, It took um, the 20 percent wealthiest Americans, so the wealthiest 20% of America. And they give 1.3% of the income. So the richest 20% of our country, they give 1.3% of their income. Then they took the nation's poorest 20%. The nation's poorest give 3.2% of their income. The poorest of this country give twice as much sacrificially as the richest. Now, the richest write bigger checks. There's no doubt about that. But they are less generous with what they make. So the deal that you and I would make with God, well, if I just had more, then I would give more. No, you wouldn't. The more you have, the more there is to love. The more you have, the harder it is to give. And look how... uh, Chapter 8, verse 1. Look how it describes these churches that Paul is taking up this offering from. Chapter 8, verse 1. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's the churches, uh, the Philippians, that's the Thessalonians. They were uh, from Macedonia, that region. For in, notice this, a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So Paul brings out two of these other churches. And he says, listen, the Macedonians, they gave so sacrificially. And look how he describes them. For in a severe test of affliction, it was probably some persecution that they were enduring. So the persecuted, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed. So three things came together for these Macedonians that caused them to give. A severe test of affliction, joy, and extreme poverty. That's what came together that stirred up their hearts to give. Now, do you feel the most generous when you are the most tested? Probably not. Do you feel the most generous when you are the poorest? Probably not. But the Macedonians, they were. And all of these churches that Paul is taking this collection from were were not wealthy churches. In fact, I read something this week that said in the Roman Empire, 10% of the population would be what we would describe middle class all the way up to the wealthiest. 
to what we would consider middle class, which is probably most of the United States of America. From that point, middle class on up to the wealthiest of the wealthy only represented 10% of the Roman Empire. The rest of the 90% are living off their daily bread. And these are the people he's taken this collection from. So the idea that we don't have enough to be generous with is just not true. He has given you every kind of grace and he has provided for you sufficiently so that you can have both what you need and enough to be generous with. But then verse 7. And here's where you can be set free. It says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What this means, it means up to you. It's up to you. You can give a dollar, you can give a million dollars, you can give somewhere in between. It's totally up to you. Look at where he ties it into. According to what each has decided in his own heart. It means you, you, your family can't decide for you. Your pastor can't decide for you. A person in need can't decide for you. You alone can decide how much you give. And if you're going to give, you should give cheerfully. We all know what it's like to give in a moment of spontaneity, you see a need out there, and it's like, I, I want to I help meet that need. And there's tremendous joy in it. And we all know what it's like to give under guilt. You know, somebody was passing something and you had to, like, throw something in. Or, you know, uh, somebody was asking for money and you felt bad not giving your money. We all know what both is like. And isn't it always better? Don't you always feel more fulfilled when you give cheerfully, when you give out of joy? When Amanda and I met, we were uh, doing this like summer mission project, and and so we met. And a few days later, like I was like totally in love with her, but you're not allowed to say that when you first meet somebody because that was weird and that will run them off. So if you're single, like don't break out the L word for a long, long, long time. That's good advice. So I couldn't, you know, set all my feelings on the table, but I had to let her know in some way, like I am into you. But we got all these like mission Jesus people around, and I can't like take her out on a date. But we could go to lunch with a bunch of different people, and so. A few days after we met, we had lunch at uh, the Chili's, super romantic. And it's me and Amanda and, uh, and like five other people. And we're just having lunch at the Chili's and, and having a good time. I'm just, I'm totally into her, just crazy into her. And I want her to know that. And, you know, if we were on a date, then the bill would come and I would pick it up, obviously, and pay for it because that's what men are supposed to do. Well, the bill comes and there's like the six or seven of us around the table and, um, I don't know what happened to me, but I just reached out and I put my hand on the ticket and I slid it back like, yeah, that's right. I got this. I got this. No, I didn't want to buy lunch for those other five jokers. But, you know, I can't say like, hey, I'm into this girl right here, but you got to be here, I guess. So I'm only going to pay for her and me and you, you couldn't do that. So I slid the check over to me and said, I got this problem was, is the check, I think, I was doing the math in between services, I think it was like $60, then, then you had to add on the tip. I had, no lie, probably not more than $120 in my bank account at that very moment. So I was doing the math as I was sliding the check over to me, like, is this, po- like, how long can I live on $60? I'm like thinking of maybe a good three weeks I'm going to get out of it. It's so maybe more than that. And so I paid for it, and, and, and I paid for all those other people. But listen, I'm, I'm glad I did it. I was glad to do it then. Not because 
of them, those other five people, but because of her. Like, I knew that was worth it. I knew that's what I wanted. I knew that's an investment that I wanted to make right there. And so I did it happily. And that's the kind of giving that all of us want to be a part of. I mean, all of us, even the most godly and righteous of us, dread giving under the weight of guilt and obligation and duty. No one wants to give like that. So, hello, God set you free. He said, I don't want it. Keep it all. Keep it all. Listen, I want you to hear me so clearly. If you don't ever want to give a dime to Bayou City Fellowship, keep your wallet in your purse or in your jacket. Don't give a dime. We don't ever need your money. Because this is a God-ordained project. And He funds His own projects. And if it's not you, and it's not me, it'd be somebody. Because there's the power of giving with a cheerful heart and a generous heart. See, when you give a dollar out of duty and obligation, all you give is a dollar. But when you give a dollar out of generosity and cheerfulness and joy, you give your faith along with that dollar. And it's faith that moves mountains. And it's faith that raises people from the dead. And it's faith that makes dead hearts come alive. And it's faith that makes the blind see. And it's faith that makes the lame walk. And it's faith that unleashes signs and wonders. So listen, I'd rather have the smallest financial pot ever if that pot is filled with people who gave out of faith than the biggest pot in the world of people who gave out of duty and obligation. Scott doesn't want our money wants our generosity and our generosity is fueled not even by need but by faith and that's why God is free and not worried about setting you free to say keep it all keep every dime don't feel bad about it let the plate pass by every week if you don't want to give then don't give you're free. But you should see the verse ahead, just in case. Verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You know this principle. This is a, this is a farm principle law of the harvest you can't expect a farmer to just go out and throw a few seeds and then he can't come back months later when it's harvest time and expect a giant harvest it doesn't work like that you reap according to what you sow it works in every area of life like college algebra I took it one and a half times I was in love with Amanda I've already, we already established that So I would make the long drive from Missouri down here to Texas, caused me to skip college algebra a lot. Um, 
And here's the thing about college algebra is the seed that you sow is the seed that you reap. Well, I was not sowing any seed because I was always skipping. And when you skip the first three sessions of college algebra, you need those three sessions for the next three sessions and then those three sessions for the next three sessions. So we take out a, you know, a couple of sessions and you're just in trouble. So the second test was about a quarter of the way through the semester and I got a very low grade, like almost single digits. It was impressive how awful it was. It was the second test that I had failed miserably. And so he handed out the test at the beginning of class. It was like an hour and a half class. And, and so I got my test. I saw what the grade was. I stood up immediately, walked out, didn't even, you know, sit through the rest of the class, walked immediately to the registrar's office and, and dropped the class because the only grade I could get was less than an F. And, and so then I had to take it back later. Why? Because you know this principle is true. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. You can't invest one thing and expect to reap another thing. It just doesn't work like that. So he says, if you sow sparingly, if you give sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. What does that mean? Does that mean like if I give a dollar, I'll reap a harvest of dollars? If I, if I give $5, I'll get $10 back. If I give $10, I get $20 back. What, what does that mean? Is that, is that something that I can claim? No, it's not dollar for dollar. It means when you give to the kingdom, you reap the kingdom. When you give your money to the kingdom, you get the peace of the kingdom. Listen, some of you are all twisted up and anxious about your money. And I would challenge you that if you got your giving and your generosity straight and ordered and consistently, that anxiety that you carry about your money will disappear. I'm not saying that your paycheck will be, get, get bigger or you'll have any less bills, but that anxiety and that twisted up knot in your stomach that you get when you think about your bank account, I think if you get your generosity in order, you'll find peace in your soul about what you have and what you don't have. And remember what Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up treasures for yourself in heaven, where moth and rust can destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. So we have this eternity that's coming to us to reap the kingdom. But it's hard for us to get a grasp on that. So I just want you to imagine with me that from this wall over here, the corner of the room, all the way to this corner of the room, is going to represent this morning our first 100,000 years in heaven, in eternal life with God, new heaven, new earth, just with Jesus, our eternal life that's coming to everyone who has believed in Jesus. We could pick any number there. We could have picked our first million years in heaven. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, am I going to be bored after like the first thousand years? No, it's going to be an amazing adventure unfolding ever new in the presence of Jesus. It's going to be unreal. So we could have picked any number, million, 10 million, 20 million, but we'll just for math's sake, let's just pick our first 100,000 Let's do a little math this morning. I already established that I'm amazing at math. So half of 100,000, remember first 100,000 years in heaven, wall to wall in this room. Right here is halfway. Half of 100,000 would be what? 50,000. Good, we're going to do a little test this morning. Half of 50,000 is what? 25,000. Half of 25,000 is what? 12,500. You guys are smart. Half of 12,500. It's going to get a little harder right here. $6,250. That's going to be a little hard for us to divide by two. Some of you are already struggling. You quit back at $50,000. 
So we'll just make the math real easy for you. We're going to change it to 6,000 right here. 6,000 years left in heaven. How, what's half of 6,000? 3,000. What's half of 3,000? 1,500. What's half of 1,500? 750. I know you're getting worried. Half of 750, 375. Some of you are trying to brag right now to your neighbor about how good you are at math. Half of 375. This is going to be harder. It's got a decimal. It's 187.5. We'll change that to 180 just for math's sake. What's 100, half 180? 90. Now, you guys are my witnesses right here. There's the 90 marker right there. 90 years, that's how long maybe you might live here on planet Earth. Statistically, you will have already been dead for a number of years. Most of us will not make it to our 90, 90th birthday. But let's just say hypothetically that you do. You make it the full 90 years compared to just your first 100,000 years in eternal life. That 90 years is this big, less than an inch. And I'm trapped in the flow of our culture and I'm trying to jam as much stuff into this tiny space and I give no thought to the bigger space. Storing up so much treasure and something that will last less than a vapor compared to just our first breath in eternity. But God sets us free. He gives us an offer that we can't refuse. And he says, if you will take this tiny breath of a life and you will sow generously, I will let you reap for all of eternity. What kind of deal is that? Every investment person in this room knows you go with what lasts the longest the most sure and what do you want to build your life on this half an inch do you want to make this half an inch the sum total of your entire existence Do you want to sow generously into the kingdom of Jesus? And for the rest of eternity, reap the rewards. That, ladies and gentlemen, is grace. That is total unmerited favor. That a vapor of faithfulness secures for you everlasting reward. That's a good deal. But listen, you are free. If you don't want to give, don't give. Keep it all. It's yours to do what you want. But if you follow Jesus, then what he has modeled for us is generosity. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. And there'll be somebody up here and you come and rip the bread off and 
when you rip the bread off, you're going to hear somebody say, the body of Jesus broken for you. You're going to take that bread and you're going to dip it in the cup. And when you dip it in the cup, you're going to hear somebody say, the blood of Jesus shed for you. And what they're saying to you and what you will be hearing is that Jesus, he sowed bountifully for you. He sowed generously for you. He gave past the last inch of his life so that you and I could reap generously. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's you and I remembering that Jesus did not withhold from us, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame. So let's follow him if we are his followers into generosity. Jesus, we thank you that you have not asked us to go places that you have not gone. And like servants, we follow. And like subjects, we follow. And like children, we follow. So stir up this generosity in us. It set me free from my own greed and my own need and want. Teach me to live on what is sufficient. 